And you're listening. And you're listening. You're listening to Salmon. 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 To Salmon Fest Radio. Hello and welcome to Salmon Fest Radio. I'm your host, Dave. And I'm Satchel. And we're here in beautiful Homer, Alaska at the headquarters of the Cook Inlet Keeper with episode six of season two of Salmon Fest Radio. We celebrate Alaska's connection to salmon by combining music recorded at Salmon Fest 2021 with some exclusive backstage interviews and incorporating voices from salmon champions around Alaska who live their life dedicated to our favorite fish. Oh, who are we featuring today, Satchel? Today our salmon champion is Amber Webb, who Dave had an opportunity to interview in person in Homer this week. She's the artist in residence at Benel Street Arts Center. And she's a Yupik woman who grew up between Anchorage and Dillingham and really reflects how her connection to her heritage and her indigenous roots drives the way she moves through the world and the art she creates. But before we go any further, I think we want to pause to recognize not just Amber and her Yupik culture in connection to salmon, but we want to recognize the traditional peoples who have stewarded our salmon landscapes all across Alaska, and specifically here where we're recording, here in Homer, Alaska, on the unceded territory of the Denina and Supiak people, we honor and recognize and give gratitude to their example of salmon stewardship through time in memoriam. And in addition to our salmon champion, Amber Webb, we've got great music in store for you today. Carsey Blandon performed from the main stage at Salmon Fest 2021 and uh, knocked everybody out. She's an interesting, uh, independent, extremely talented performer, and I'm excited about getting to that. Yeah, me too. This episode is packed with really inspiring women, and I'm, I'm, you know, obviously excited about that as we move forward. So we've got a good show for you. We'll start with a little tune from Carsey Blanton from Salmon Fest 2021. Carsey's just super energetic, super raw, super honest in how she moves through the world as a musician, 
how she brings what she's passionate about to the stage and she brought her passions to the backstage in Keeper Lounge when we sat down with her last Salmon Fest. So we're going to let her roll. It's a fun interview. I am Carsey Blanton. I am the main songwriter and singer in the band and band leader. I'm Joe Plowman. I'm the bassist, sometimes co-writer, and uh, also backup singer. And I'm Pat Firth, and I'm the keyboardist and singer. Awesome. So where are you from? Ooh, starting with a complicated question. I grew (laughs) up in Virginia, and I lived all over the place, and now I live outside of Philadelphia. Joe lives in Philly. Pat lives in New York. Nice. It's very far away from here. Yes, it is. Doesn't matter. Yeah, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Um, So, can you talk a little bit about how you guys got together? Are you, you're kind of, it's kind of your... Yes. Your thing, and then you've got amazing support. Yes, I am head, and (laughs) I started writing songs when I was like 13, and then I started touring... a little more than 15 years ago, I guess. And then I met Joe about 11 years ago and Pat about seven years ago. So these guys have been with me for a long time at this point. What is the thing that sort of makes you guys work as a trio? What values musically or otherwise do you share? I mean, gosh, I'm, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Go ahead. Willingness to sit in a car for a long time. Yes. yes. Comfortable with uh, all facing the same direction and listening to the same music for <laughs> hours and hours and hours on end. Yes. I, I also have to say, and this is only coming up now because I'm super on my period and I just ate a bunch of brownies in the dinner room, but like these guys are both really comfortable having a female band leader, which I feel like is a little bit of an unusual quality for dudes, which is like... of all musicians who are professionals are dudes. So I've like worked with a lot of different guys and a lot of them are not comfortable with me being the band leader and like it's my gig and you're on the gig and you're here in a supportive role. And these guys are both just super good at being in a supportive role and also super comfortable with me being like, I'm on my period, I need a brownie. Doesn't freak them out. (laughs) Never has, never will. (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) Not yet so far. That's awesome to hear. That makes me feel <laughs> even more comfortable around you guys. So, seem like yeah. good dudes. Also, musically, I think we have a pretty a wide swath of uh, musical interests and tastes in common. So there's quite a lot of stuff that we all enjoy listening to, which includes like jazz and also R&B and also like Tom Petty and like 80s synth pop and yeah. etc. Yeah, no, we have we have kind of this thing where where Carsey's kind of the director of everything, and we get to put our collective interest in, which is really nice. And and uh, uh, I mean, it's definitely an open an open environment where we get to express like what we need and and all of that in music terms. Yeah, but all yeah. within the context of her vision, which is easier for Patrick and I. Yeah, because we don't yeah. have to be in charge of anything. Yeah, <laughs> we, we just do a good job and show up on time. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit about your music? Sort of what genres influence you? And oh God, it's such a such a storied uh, <laughs> history. I've been writing songs for a super long time, so I feel like I've gone through a lot of phases. And now we have like seven records to draw from when we play a set. So I feel like I've gone through phases of more folk and more pop and more like indie rock, um, and some jazz influence and some like Motown influence. 
Does that cover it? I don't yeah. know. Did I miss anything? I, I don't notice it. And we're auditioning drummers right now. And that's when I notice it. I'm like, oh, God. I'm, yeah, there's like three punk rock songs, <laughs> one full jazz standard, and like <laughs> a grab bag of other genres on this record. So good luck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's true. Yeah. But a common thread through all of it still. Yeah. Yeah. So I'd say we cover we cover a fair bit of ground. And also we've like... I've been making records for long enough that it's like 15 years worth of different influences now are part of the set. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. I wanted to ask, can you articulate what that common thread is? Ooh, uh, it's, po it's pop music. It's, yeah. it's just a love of pop, popular music, yeah. Like, and understanding how, how it, it kind of threads everything together in, in society. I mean, like, it's a, it's a, it's a deep, it's a deep, Deep tapestry, I guess. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> totally. Just to yeah. Think of other woven <laughs> and pop analogies. music covers like <laughs> Irving Berlin, but also like yeah, the yeah. Supremes, and also Tom Petty, and also Elvis Costello. Yeah. Like pop music has been a lot of things over the last hundred years. It's, it's coming up with <laughs> themes that just uh, that that people can relate to and understand, and yeah. yeah. We've talked a lot in the band about how Americana has kind of become a brand, but. Like, why isn't jazz Americana, and why isn't... There's, like, everything is Americana, yeah. basically, in jazz the American like pops canon. arguably the most American music, but it's somehow not, not part of Americana. Yeah, <laughs> so in that sense, I would say, like, ah, maybe the three of us are kind of an Americana band. Yeah, yeah. that's yeah. accurate. Widening the scope of what Americana is, yeah. Sure. Yeah. So, I've been told, and I will be honest that I don't know your music very well. I'm not um, <laughs> but I, I've been told that you're really passionate um, and bring a lot of sort of the things you care about to the stage. Does that feel like it? that's true? I think that's accurate, yeah. Yeah. So what are you most passionate about and why, why do you take that opportunity to, to bring it to your music? Woo! I mean, I think that... I, I've said this before, but I feel like I have... I've tried to sell out, but nobody was buying. So like, I've never had a record label and I've never kind of had anyone above my own creative vision to sort of try and market to. And I think the advantage of that is that everything I've ever been passionate about has been part of my music because there's sort of no reason to not do that. Um, so that went from like a few years ago, I made a record called So Ferocious, which was basically about like female sexuality and like rejecting shame. And at the time, that was what I was most excited to write about. And this new record, Love and Rage, I think is more about like late capitalism and what the problems are with that and how to fight against fascism and how to try and be more egalitarian and sort of usher in an age of socialism, which is something I'm very passionate about. And again, it's like that's what I'm thinking about. So that's what I'm writing about. And there isn't anybody in charge to tell me not to do that. <laughs> it's just all it's just me. Really. That's and then these guys are like, cool, living. we're doing that now. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Do you find you resonate with with the lyrics and the the vision? Um, yeah, especially after the year of 2020. It was, a, it was a distillation of a lot of things that had been growing in my mind. And then Carsey lived with me for that whole year. So we had all this time to sit and reflect together. So some of the more, some of what Carsey was just talking about, we had a lot of time to just sit and talk about these things over many, many dinners and then get out into the streets and, like, put our backs behind it, you know. 
I, I would say I would say we've kind of grown together, Patrick as well. Yeah. How do you find people respond? Do you notice that it's it's really resonating with your audience as well, or do you feel like you've ever lost listeners because you've been so like speaking your mind and willing to cross lines that other artists maybe aren't? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> it's like a, probably I've lost some listeners. Probably we've gained some listeners. There's been a few shows where we've been playing the newer songs and I've been like, oh, they don't like it. Okay. But <laughs> but it's sort of like, again, it's like there's not enough money in selling out these days. So it's almost like, okay, why wouldn't we do this? Like, all right, five other people aren't going to go to the show now. Oh, well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The stakes are pretty low just because there's so little like security in the music business anyway. So I'm kind of like, we might as well go for it. And like some people will be pissed off. But a lot of people also, I think, are excited to like find someone singing about the stuff that we're all thinking about. And like Joe said, especially after, especially like in the pandemic, it's just felt like really clarifying for a lot of people's political ideas. So I think a lot of people right now are like looking for a place to channel their feelings of like, is the world ending? Is capitalism failing us? Can we do something else instead? <laughs> um, during the Trump era, like the past four years, like I think a lot of Americans were horrified to watch uh, just so many environmental regulations be rolled back. And um, as musicians, like, you know, I, I know I just talked about how like, oh, we've grown together and like now, yeah, we're all we're all really on board with the same stuff. But some I still get uncomfortable sometimes when if Carr says something that's like overtly political, I'm like, oh, is this going to go over? Oh, no, we're really like booted. And then it's <laughs> obviously fine. But today when we were done, one of the organizers got on stage and just started really spilling tea like Donald Trump passed this legislation. Now we're worried about these like hundred acres like getting leased by like the I had never heard about any of this before, but this is all just reminded me of like the mountaintop removal stuff in West Virginia, like the coal mines that he was trying to keep alive, like all of the stuff that I hated so much. And to see someone get up on stage and be like, this is super messed up and we have to stop this. That made me feel like I was at home. That was awesome. <laughs> I love to hear that. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, it's, it definitely feels risky anytime we walk into a new place that we haven't played before. <laughs> For sure. And you go, I don't know if these people are going to like this, but we're going to say it anyway. <laughs> and we come we come up and we do it. And and but the, the great I think the kind of going off of what you guys have already said, like the reaction is almost always po net positive. <laughs> and yeah, you know what? We do lose a couple of fans. And I'm like, that's good. <laughs> good that's a good thing. Because <laughs> we made you mad. So Rock maybe maybe you're going to go home and you're going to think about this a little bit more. <laughs> and maybe we just kind of like inch a little bit closer to getting a few more people thinking about these kinds of things and, and thinking in a positive, more social way that, yeah. you know, will ultimately benefit, you know, our society, whether it's environmental or politically or or with sexuality or any of that stuff. It's like, yeah, it's, it's all of that. Mm. Amen. Yeah. And right before we went on stage, uh, Janine was like, oh, these guys are all really liberal, like, you'll be fine. Which was nice, because we don't always get that. Sometimes we're, like, going out blind. So it does feel good to, like, be in a place where it's, like, I can say all the political stuff and people will be like, yeah! <laughs> yeah, it definitely resonates in this crowd. <laughs> you come in at the top of my shit list Even though you look a little punk rock You talk real loud but you're totally witless I think we had enough of hearing you talk So your life ain't a dream that you thought it would be So you cry and you 
If you're just tuning in, this is Salmon Fest Radio, and you can find us here on this remarkable radio station or via our podcast. You can find that by going to salmonfestradio.org or through any of the platforms you might be soaking in your podcast in your regular routine. I'm wondering, in Philly, what are the main issues and, and social social or environmental concerns that kind of is visible and you feel it and people are thinking about it because it's right there? Mm. Oh, man. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff. Uh, I'm in an organization called PSL, which stands for Party for Socialism and Liberation, and they have a Philly branch that's super active. And they've mostly been lately working on getting unemployed people fed during the pandemic and then also stopping evictions has been a huge deal, especially this last couple of weeks where it's sort of like, are they evicting people? Are they not? Like there were there was like three days where they did start evicting people. And so a lot of people have been like going out and making human barriers to keep people from getting evicted and stuff like that. So I would say like housing is a huge, huge deal in Philly and in most a lot of major cities. Are there things about Philly that tie you to the landscape and like remind you like more of like the sort of bigger ecological systems that you're part of on the east coast or it's a great that question. Is a good question i feel like i always wish there were 
What about you, Pat? You live on the beach. Yeah, so so I don't live in Philadelphia. Yeah. I live in New York, and uh, but I live I get to live in the Rockaways in, in New York City. And actually, we were talking about this uh, the the oyster reefs today. Y'all probably relate to up here on on some level with the ocean dealing with with climate change and, and how the ocean is is changing and and how. Well, at least in New York City, we're dealing with a lot of erosion and issues like that. Dealing with with building reefs and things like that off the off the coasts and 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 ways that would potentially stop some of the issues that are are kind of impacting cities like New York City, which in in the Rockaways, there's a lot of erosion. We suffered through Hurricane Sandy uh, pretty badly, which was. You know, it has been a decade of recovery at this point. The and land so, is disappearing. But yeah, the land is basically just kind of going away at this point. And so, yeah. And Pat's a surfer, too, so he's really up close to the ocean yeah, and yeah, the changing I get, landscape. I get in the water on a daily basis when I'm at home. So, yeah, <laughs> I'm right up in there all the time. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, we, we talk about climate change a lot in this band. <laughs> yeah, <we laughs> I feel like the sort of sense of apocalypse and like impending doom and the changing planet is very. Uh, present in the songs and uh, and something we talk about on stage and stuff like that. So I think we're always in the car driving to a gig like, hey, did you see that article about how the effects of climate change that they predicted to be happening in 2070 are happening right now? Wow! So... It's a it's a hot topic. Oh, and <laughs> also we are we drive around the whole country all the time. We have seen it everywhere. Yeah. Like we have seen every single state, and we've seen it mess up every single state. Yeah. Yeah. Whether it's like fires farmers in, in California, fires in California. Whether it's like pine beetle damage to fir trees in Alaska or Colorado, or it's like farmers switching to growing amaranth because yeah. corn has destroyed the ground in right. Kansas. Yeah. I think we're all like super familiar with the effects of climate change on the whole continent at this point. <laughs> yeah. Well, incorporating it into your music is, I'm sure it's helpful for you and it's also helpful for like the public. Like we have to be talking about it. We can't just turn a blind eye and, and doing it through the vehicle of music is so, like it really does help you cope and it helps you like realize that we are dealing with this and at the same time we have tools and music is a tool like it really does help put people in a mindset that like okay maybe this is something that like we can tackle because I don't know it brings joy and it rather than fear and when you're afraid like it's just really hard to figure out what the next step is and focus on solutions yeah those of us who believe that climate change is happening, <laughs> which is a majority of Americans at this point, barely. Um, I think we talk about it a lot in a sort of sterile way that feels like we're trying to be scientific. And I think that we also need to feel it because it feels really sad and really scary. And I think if we don't actually express those feelings and dig into them a little bit, then we sort of get stuck avoiding them. So it feels to me like part of why I enjoy singing our songs is because I get to like go ahead and feel that the world is ending and that's really scary. And then you can sort of get to the other side of it and be hopeful again. I have personally can't feel hopeful until I've expressed this is terrifying and I'm sad. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the hope is after that, not before for yeah. me. I also think that we're stuck in this sort of conversation about Democrats and Republicans and that's like not actually what's going on. Like I think more of what's going on is that we're we're running society based on profit right now. And so sort of corporations are determining what all our political conversations are. And I think most people who are working class and not 
CEOs of Exxon can see that that's happening and, and people actually have more common ground when they acknowledge that. Like, it's kind of all the money in the world versus all of the people and living creatures in the world. <laughs> so, like, there's more solidarity there than we see when we watch the news, you know? So I feel like I try to get that across in the music, but I also piss off Republicans all the time, so. <laughs> yeah. But, yeah, you are opening a door for people to get in the same place and start making those realizations. Yeah, we really Absolutely. are all in it together, or, like, the vast majority of us, at least. Yeah. <laughs> um, big, big question. Okay. But, like, you know, if someone were to ask you how to protect what you love, how do we protect what we love, like, as individuals, what can we do? Like, there's so many different approaches. What are the approaches you would take? Start by getting off Facebook and <laughs> trying to do something in real life. Yes. Good advice. Um, that's where I would start. <laughs> where I would go next. Pat, you want to chime in? You guys know what I'm going to say. <laughs> I, don't, I, I actually don't know what you're going to say, but the, the one general thing I would say is just keep loving. Just keep, keep trying. Just keep striving no matter what. You know, I think that's, I think that's all we can do is is just try our best to to further ourselves and and try to make the world a better place than what we came into when we were he born here yeah but what were you gonna say I, I'm i second both of those and also revolution destroy capitalism at all costs <laughs> or it will destroy us those are the options yeah <laughs> coming for us. Yeah. I don't want to yeah. do revolution, but sometimes you have to, and this is one of those times. <laughs> you're not wrong. You're not wrong. I'm not going to say you're wrong. <laughs> I don't know if this is on in the same vein or not, but I wanted to ask, we're going to highlight some music from your set. Is there any music, specifically a song, that you want people to hear, you want our listeners to hear? I would say related to this conversation, probably Down in the Streets, maybe Be Good. Those are the first two songs in the set. Okay. What, on, on can brand. you tell us a little bit about those songs? Yeah. Uh, Down in the Streets is like a protest song, like literally written during the protests of last summer um, and kind of about like rallying people to take back power and do a revolution. Awesome. <laughs> um, and then Be Good is more like what Pat was saying. It's about yeah. loving everybody and... But also, fuck fascism. <laughs> Shit list is the song that you also need to listen to, because yeah. because that's that's impending right now. Yeah, it's, it totally. definitely Quite is. Timely. Yeah. Yeah, man. Word. Yeah. Cool. yeah. What is the future you imagine, and what is the future you hope for? I love that question. That's so good. <sighs> I mean. I always come back to the idea that we have total abundance. We have enough of everything on the planet to take great care of all of the humans and other creatures. And so the future I imagine is just one where we allocate resources according to people's needs and the needs of the other creatures and the needs of the ecosystem. It's super simple. We already have everything we need to do that, except for like a, a way of organizing things other than profit-based. So I'm all about that. A planet of humans living in harmony with nature would be a good thing. Yeah. Actually. Yeah. Yeah, I second that. The quality, the quality of all things in, in terms of, of 
financial and, and in terms of, of uh, human needs. Everyone should have housing, food, medical care. We have all of it. We have the ability to do all of this right now. Let's do it right now. Yeah. Let's go. Right now. <laughs> I'll start right now. I don't care. That's fine. Christ was a handsome man He had nothing to hide He said, get bread to the hungry Bring the homeless inside Jesus Christ was a dangerous man That's the way that he died Saying, be good to the people you love a disaster going faster and faster and all of my heroes turning out to be bastards ain't no peace to be found 
And you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. If you're just tuning in now, you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. We just heard the backstage interview with artist feature Carsey Blanton and some music from her onstage performance. Now we're pivoting to our Salmon Champion segment where we're going to talk to Amber Webb. And we were lucky enough to do an in-person interview with Amber Webb here in Homer, Alaska, where she's doing an artist-in-residence at Bunnell Street Arts Center. We're here with Amber Webb here in Homer at the Bunnell Gallery. Good morning, Amber. Good morning. You're not from around these parts, are you? No, I'm from Chilreung. I'm from Dillingham, and Chilreung is the tribal name, and it means the churning water, but I live in Aleknagik, so I'm here from Bristol Bay. Did you grow up there? I grew up in Dillingham and in Anchorage. We went back and forth a lot, but mostly Dillingham, and then my husband... His family is from Aleknagik, so we've been uh, living there for almost three years now. Tell us a little bit about your uh, routine out there in Aleknagik. What are the roles that you fill? It's in, in my experience out in Bristol Bay, 
everybody has 37 hats and I'm guessing uh, you do too. Yeah, I'm a mom and I'm also the health aide in Electnigic right now and I do prevention work. I sit on a few boards and try to be, you know, a helpful community member. My husband and I have really been focused on trying to continue those Yupik values of taking care of elders, making sure that people have what they need and being as helpful as we can in, in those ways. So that's been a really rewarding thing to focus on. And also just, I'm really lucky to have him there to do it with me. What's a day in the life like for you? I'm, I'm not clear on what a health aide does in rural Alaska. That's a really good question. Health aides do everything. They do registration, they do labs, they do blood draws, they interface with the doctor. I, I work out there by myself, so I pretty much do all of that. And then if there's any emergency calls, then I come in for those. So uh, EMT work, driving the ambulance or driving people down in my truck if I need to, down to Dillingham. And then I go home and spend time with my kids and in the evenings if I don't have a, a board meeting or some other obligation. I, I try to do art in the evenings, but probably not daily, maybe a couple times a week. So you have, you have a number of offsprings. Yes, I have two daughters. One is uh, 15 and one is five. They're a lot of fun. They're both very assertive young women. What's the best thing, Amber, about living out in, in Aleknagik? Probably the best thing about living there is being where my ancestors lived where my ancestors have been forever, and being able to access the same life ways. Like, I can live with the seasons. I can pick ferns. I can gather seagull eggs. I can pick berries. I can harvest fish and moose. And there's something about doing those things that absolutely does change the way that I make art. So... The experiences that I have on the land, I can't really describe some of them. It's like the land remembers the things we don't remember. So a lot of my artwork comes from those moments where I'll see what my ancestors must have seen and I'm doing what they must have done. And I can feel it. Like I can feel the land is happy that I'm there doing those things. Let's talk about that, that process. First of all, we're trying Mission Impossible here. We're talking about a visual artwork on a podcast and radio program. So could you help our, our listeners understand what you're making at this time in your career? Lately, I've been doing a lot of drawing, mostly. I prefer ink, and I'm referencing older Yupik ways of telling stories through graphics. I kind of take influence from uh, some of the tools that would be made and, and then there would be an image put on a tool and it would have a story and people would know the story from the image. I'm trying to figure out how to create stories using those same tools. And I think it's been mostly drawing lately because it's a more accessible medium since I do so many other things, but drawing seems to be the easiest way to communicate these stories that I think are super important. So there's the old stories, 
that people sometimes don't hear anymore. And then there's the contemporary stories of what's happening to Native people now in, in all of the layers of that and all of the brilliance and the heartbreak and the, the excellence, all of it, you know. Yeah, and you come from a very interesting place because throughout modern, quote, history, Bristol Bay has had a huge influx of people from outside that have come to take advantage of that remarkable system and that remarkable production of, of salmon. And there's at least two economies there, right? And I wonder how you think about that change over time and, and how it's affecting folks that have lived in the area for generations. Well, you know, from the beginning, it's kind of a mixed bag because salmon... Salmon is our lifeblood. Salmon is at the root of who we are, right? But we're more than just salmon. And one of the things that happened is when that resource was discovered and kind of harnessed by Western people, there was a lot of exploitation that happened of indigenous people. And a, a lot of what I'm seeing now is indigenous community members trying to guide those outcomes more but um, the impact of, of the fishing industry on our communities has not always been good. In some ways, we benefit from that, and in some ways, that was the driver of a lot of cultural loss and a lot of tragedy and a lot of trafficking, even, of our people. So I think it's important to acknowledge both because we're proud of our fishing culture, and, and we have now maybe even seven or eight generations of of fishermen and our indigenous families that have made their lives around the fishing season and the fishing industry. But I think it's still important to tell the truth and to acknowledge that that wasn't always good. But one of the things that I'm hearing about now is like considerations about food sovereignty, considerations about tribal sovereignty and how tribal nations in Bristol Bay are absolutely entitled to direct some things about the fishing industry and they that I, that's really important and that should be honored coming from a family of people that fisher person you know i'm i don't i've never commercial fished but my my grandpa uh, tendered and my husband fishes and my family still does benefit from that industry and also there are challenges around that sometimes too so the the pieces that we see here and there's over a dozen drawings on natural wood surfaces in uh, mostly dark inks. And I see you're, you're now adding color to at least one piece. Where, where is it that you go when you're drawing or creating? Like in my head? Yeah. I, I Sometimes I'm doing traditional style designs and then sometimes I'm doing these figure drawings of round indigenous women and kind of trying to represent indigenous women for themselves not for somebody else's eye but us for ourselves like asserting that we have a, a right to take up space and a right to be ourselves and all of the joy that comes along with that you know we hear a lot of things about MMIW I've done a lot of activism about murdered and missing indigenous women preventing violence against women the other side of that is talking about who we really are because we're not all of those things that people do to us we're we're these strong joyful sometimes round sometimes not i want more representation 
I, I want representation for everyone. I want everyone to feel seen. And then also, I want to tell the stories that are hard to tell, the stories that sometimes are even hard to hear. And sometimes I think visual representations of those stories make it easier to understand because we have these words we hear a lot. We hear historic trauma, we hear intergenerational trauma, epigenetics. You hear about boarding schools, you hear about colonization, decolonization. There's all these terms people use and like, what do those terms actually even mean? So I don't want to say the same thing over again. I want to show it so people kind of have a better understanding what we're talking about. It's hard to, it's hard to describe all the themes that might be in my work, but that's basically like at the root of it. In talking the other day when we were together, you were talking about the fisheye, and, and I assume that, that you're incorporating traditional symbols or traditional graphic elements to tell part of that story. How do the, the traditional art forms and symbolism enter into the work you make? Yupik people are people that are absolutely dependent on animals. We are a part of our environment. Without the stomach and the intestines and all the parts of the animals, we couldn't have survived and lived the way that we do. So a lot of that work has been really understanding who I am and who my people are and then trying to show that. I'll use older symbols like the Yupik fisheye. That fisheye is important because the fisheye never closes. It's always watchful, but it's also really important to think about things like the the Yupik cosmology in the Yupik universe, like that fisheye represents the three universes. You know, there's the animal, the spiritual, and the human universes, and it's a circle with a dot in the middle. If you look at the image, you see that there are three universes in there, even though there's only a circle with a dot in the middle. So the negative space in the circle also is representational of a universe. And then I have kind of like when you draw a really simple shape of a bird up in the sky, like kids will draw that kind of V shape for a bird. I use that a lot to represent prayer. Not probably in a Western sense of prayer, but when I'm drawing a lot of the times I'm focusing on an issue and I'm putting everything I have into praying for a good outcome for something or maybe maybe one day it'll be praying for a good fishing season or another time it might be praying for people that might be struggling like people struggling through the pandemic or people struggling with addiction or people feeling like maybe hurting themselves and in that case we need every single one of our people every single one of our indigenous people are important to to the work of decolonization and the work of continuing to exist. So uh, a lot of my work will incorporate those kinds of symbols because what I'm doing isn't really just creating images. It's, it's a practice of something I think much deeper than that, maybe. You're a young person compared to old me, <laughs> but you've had a life experience both in Anchorage and out, out in the Bay. And you've seen changes even in your life in the, the place and the, that interaction of cultures. And I, I wonder what you think about when you think about those changes. I think it can be really challenging to watch things change sometimes, especially right now where the generation of people that are passing on right now are a lot of our 
main culture bearers and I don't know if I'd call myself young, but I definitely am starting to think a lot more about what kind of elder that I'll become and what will I have to offer the next generation of youth growing up when they ask me about culture. And when I was going through the youth cultural heritage program through the Alaska State Council on the Arts, one of the things that really struck me was that if you don't live it, you lose it. It's gone. Things can be just gone. So after boarding schools and after these plagues that swept through our region, you know, in the early 1900s and even before that, we lost 80% of our people. So we lost so much traditional knowledge and what's left is so precious. So it's, it's really important as an artist to not only honor what we already still have access to, but also continue to create new material that asserts our identity because we're still here and we're still living in that same mindset. Just because we're not doing everything just the way our ancestors did doesn't mean that their cultural values and ways of being aren't continuing. But a lot of what I've been doing over the past 20 years has been really thinking about what is it in my family that came from my Yupik ancestors and what is it that came from my white ancestors and how am I going to honor that mixing but also honor who I am as a Yupik person as a whole person you know I think that the generation that came before me couldn't say the things that we're saying now they couldn't and they did what they had to do to survive and so it's really important to honor the sacrifices that they made inside themselves the sacrifices of their self-respect sometimes even and you know the generation before my mom's generation is really like white is right generation in my area where there was a lot of mixing it was like if somebody who was white said it it must be true and it was how people survived because they had to survive so I I I think about that and it makes me sad but also if those people didn't find ways to get through an incredibly racist time in the state's history and the world's history, I mean, it, we're still struggling with these things now, but now people have ways of talking about indigenous sovereignty that get further. A lot of the people that I know at home that were trying to fight for sovereignty were shut down because people had this idea that you had to comply in order to get through things and maybe you kind of do but I think that in the next 15 to 20 years you're gonna see a lot of people saying um actually we don't we don't have to do that we can recognize that culture is prevention that language is prevention that everything about us that makes us who we are is allowed to be continued and we don't have to we don't have to do that anymore but I think it's good to be diplomatic but it's also good to say, hey, you know, this isn't fair. And, and it never was. And I think we have a lot of people growing up right now who are fiercely intelligent and are going and getting an education so that they can use those resources to decolonize. So it's like an interesting thing. I'm talking to young people now who are like, I had to recover from college but once I did, I know how to use that language and use that structure against itself so that I can preserve my culture and I can keep my people healthy.
This, this show is ostensibly about salmon, and could you talk about the connection of, around salmon? Prior to maybe even the 1970s, all of the pictures I've ever seen, there was so much salmon all the time. And I can remember watching videos of them using the, what are those called? The like yeah, and they'd like like throwing fish, and then they'd have the person standing next to them counting the fish as they throw them like faster than you'd think people can move. And then when I was a kid, I remember we would go to uh, take our barges to the processing ships, and you know we'd collect the fish in brailer bags and weigh it, and then they would suck it up through a tube into the processing ships, and that's completely different. So there have been a lot of changes like that over time, but I lived through the 90s when when things pretty much crashed, everything crashed. And so in terms of having the salmon available as a resource, we always had it. There wasn't a time in our history where we overfished salmon up until recently because it was so bountiful and plentiful that we couldn't have. I was speaking with somebody from the Nanilchik area talking about how indigenous people are allowed to to subsist here and I found out that there are a lot of limitations and it broke my heart because if Fish and Game tried to say that we couldn't set our nets out, I think that that would be dangerous for Fish and Game because they think people would protest and it it, it breaks my heart that we, we make space for commercial fishing and sports fishing on a massive scale in this area, but we won't let our indigenous tribal members put their nets out. What are we doing? You know, to me, the two can coexist, but if you're not honoring the food sovereignty and the role of indigenous people historically within that structure, it's, that's not right. I was really upset by that. And we take a lot for granted, but it made me feel really grateful that I've grown up setting a net out and being able to put enough fish away to feed my family. And as you know, in, in Bristol Bay, people depend on that. It's prohibitively expensive for most people to feed their families on the food that you can buy at a store. It's almost impossible and that food probably isn't the most nutritious and so salmon is such a huge part of being able to have those resources. So I don't know maybe that's not what you were looking for but I found that out and I was like what? I I think that's really a good point you you know the challenges that we have not only in Bristol Bay but around the state about these multiple demands on a finite resource as a person who's living and immersed in that Bristol Bay system with generations of connections. I want to think about the future that you envision for your daughters as they're growing up and what you're handing off. What's the best view that you can think of of the place you live coming forward? I want them to know more than I did about subsistence, about what plants you can eat, about where to harvest things. I I want to be able to tell my children, this is where your great-grandma went. This is where your grandma went. And that they'll have that connection and they'll continue to do those things. And I guess when I think about the future, I, I, want, I want my kids to be able to continue doing what my mom learned how to do from my, my grandma and from her grandma, um, especially smoking fish and, and processing meat. And I also want them to be able to learn how to butcher seals because that's something I wasn't 
I wasn't taught to do. I learned how to butcher moose. I've learned how to process other animals. And also I would, I'd really like to see them know how to do things like tan hides and skin sew. And maybe one of my kids will pick that up. As a mom from the Dillingham Aleknagek Metroplex, <laughs> what's, the, what's the best thing about salmon? Uh, you can smoke it. <laughs> Smoked fish is the best thing about salmon. People have really strong opinions about how to, how to make their smoked fish. You don't mess with somebody's smoked fish. Actually, my daughter has food allergies, and when she was about maybe like four, I would say, we went to a store and there was a piece of smoked fish on a shelf and it had corn syrup solids in it. She can't have corn syrup and it was smoked fish, but she loved smoked fish. And that was one of the foods that she wasn't allergic to. And so um, I picked it up and I read it and I was like, um, May, I'm sorry, you can't eat this. It's got corn syrup solids in it. And then she said, man, messing with the native's fish and walked away. <laughs> and she was so mad. <laughs> and it was so funny, this little tiny kid who's blonde, <laughs> you know, walking through natural pantry, messing with the native's fish and walked away all mad. I feel like that's the best way to talk about like how strongly people feel about salmon that even at the age of three, she had strong feelings about her salmon. It's a hot night and I don't feel like sleeping. I got too much commotion. Thank you, Amber Webb. That was a really powerful interview. Thank you for sharing that piece of yourself and your community with us and our listeners. With a fever apathy, I'm breezy in the summertime. Ain't nobody gonna give it to me well that's all we've brought for you today salmon fest radio listeners you know you can always find this episode and the previous episodes wherever you find your podcast or at salmonfestradio.org we'd like to thank those folks that have helped make this possible of course the folks at kbbi that help with technical expertise and the classy equipment that we operate with and our volunteer team at SalmonFest featuring Pastor Tim, who records the music and masters it for our listening pleasure. And of course, the organizers of that great music festival, SalmonFest, uh, without all of their hard work and uh, specialized knowledge, it wouldn't come together every year as we prepare for the 11th edition uh, this coming August. That's right, and we want to thank all our features today, Carsey Blanton and her bandmates and Amber Webb. And where would we be without our producer, editor, Kira Hardy, who makes us sound so very, very good. And we'd also like to thank Cook and Lit Keeper, the organization that supports the creation of this podcast and has 27 years of protecting the Cook and Lit watershed and the life it sustains behind it. I'm your host, Satchel. I'm Dave. And you're listening to Salmon, Salmon Fest, Fest Radio. Radio.